I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Great. Well, you're about to find out. Uh, we're hanging out with David, David Richmond. Um, and look, look, I, I'm going to get this out of the way, okay? Because, Taylor, I know you like fucking talking bikes. I'll, I'll, I'll cap it. And, David, I know you like to fucking <laughs> ride your bike really far. And we're going to be talking about him riding his bike all the time. And Taylor's going to want to talk about, like, what fucking brake pads do you use? And <laughs> what are your thoughts on the on what, what, what do you have on your Zwift there? He doesn't use brake pads. He doesn't have brake pads. They're <laughs> right, disc right, right. Too. Yeah, right. For sure. So just get, get the fucking bike stuff out of the way now, Taylor. It's already out of the way. We got it out of the way right before oh, we even started. It's true. Recording. It's true. We did. But okay. there was one thing that I wanted to kind of just kind of roll back on uh, because David is uh, not all, not only is David a bike guy, uh, he's also an author. He's a public speaker. He's a fucking endurance athlete. Um, and and we were kind of talking about some of the stuff you did, David. It is kind of wild. I mean, you opened the conversation up prior to recording with, um, <laughs> what did you say? Like, you, you said you did how many Ironmans? 50. 50? <laughs> no, no 20. 20, 20 fulls and, 50 and now uh, I've done, I don't know, maybe 50 halves and, and the like, maybe a little bit more. That's a lot. <laughs> A lot. That's a lot of Ironmans. Yeah, I've done a lot of nonsense. How how um how like busted up are your butt cheeks? You know what I mean? Sitting on it or or your or like your you know. See, you, this is old, where this is where it helps to have a resident bike expert. The, sorry, not, not the butt cheeks. cheeks. The, the gooch, the gooch. <laughs> your balls? I don't know what the fuck's going on on a bike. I mean, I'm sure I feel like a bike is busting up all your shit. Good. <laughs> that's a good um, way to put it well so okay so this is interesting you, you've done you've done you've done these um really wild races i mean it's it's a wild thing for someone's body to go through all that um but not only do you do the you know this crazy shit as a as like a for the, the love of the sport yep um you also do it to to kind of raise awareness and and pique people people's interest in other people's experiences in life. Mm-hmm. So for the con- for context for our listeners and for the guys because I know you guys were coming into this kind of blind. Yep. Um let the let the fellows know what um what's behind cycle of lives. Sure. Well, I appreciate that. So uh it kind of all all started when I just got a wake up call. I don't know about any of you guys but sometimes you just get a wake up call like hey man there's something very wrong. And you just get a wake up call. My wake up call came with a buddy of mine. Uh, I was in my late thirties. I was married to an abusive alcoholic, um, really living not a good life. I'd been a smoker two packs a day for 20 years. Uh, I was overweight, I guess in, in kilograms, I'm 20 K overweight. No, 
more than that, 30, 35 K overweight. So for a lot, uh, stressed out. I was pretty successful at work, but I was, I was absolutely freaking miserable, like totally miserable. I had four-year-old twins. It was getting really dangerous for them. It was really dangerous for me. Cause you know, you can't fight back. You just got to take it. And eventually I couldn't take it anymore. So I was at this low point and I'm sitting there having a whiskey with my buddy. And I started complaining as I always did for the last few years to him. Cause he was one of the closest friends I had. And I said, geez, man, I'm, I'm so freaking tired of all this nonsense, right? Like bad people and bad things and bad, this and bad, that, and I'm tired of the problems and whatever. And he just goes, man, I'm literally done hearing about it. Like you're the fucking problem. And I went, what, how dare you? Uh, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm ready to take him to the mat. Cause I'm like, I, there's no way I'm the problem. It's like, I had this bad thing happen. I had that bad thing happen. I mean, this, you know, this person here and that, and he goes, no, man, he goes, look, let me explain something to you. He goes, everything in life that you're attracted to is a wild animal work problem person, you know, whatever. He says, everything is a wild animal. And you are the guy that thinks, Oh man, I, I'll pick up this wild animal. I'll take it home and feed it and care for it. And, and, and I'll pet it and I'll, and I'll be nice to it. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll give it a safe place and you show that you care about it. And then all of a sudden it bites you and you wonder what the hell he goes, wild animals do that. They bite. They don't know any better. He said, why don't you go home and take a, a look in the mirror and see what your own problems are. Like I'm, I'm tired of you thinking it's everybody else. It's you, you keep attracting wild animals. And I'm like, Whoa, mm. I never heard that before, <laughs> you know? So it really was a wake up call for me. And I, I, uh, I just embarked on a transformation to go like, who am I? Like who, who, you know, what, what's my problems and who could I be in life? And it just, it was just a wake up call to get me to kind of change my thinking. And that led me to all these other projects that we're, that we're talking ooh, about. Ooh. When, when you first go through an experience like that, when, like you said, you've been through these like four or five years of, of getting down sort of like the lowest of lows and then your friend says it to you. There's there's something like really profound and powerful about a realization like that. But what does it actually take to like put that realization into action and not just like walk away from that moment and not fucking learn anything? Ooh. Like you don't you don't know what you know until you know it, right? You don't hear what you hear until you hear it. And I was just such at a low point, and and it just he caught me at the right time where I just went, yeah, like maybe I am the problem. Like like maybe I am the problem. Mm -hmm. And I, and I had a pr pretty traumatic childhood, pretty, pretty rough adolescence. Um, you know, I mean, shit, I was homeless. I was robbed at gunpoint a couple of times. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I grew up in a household that was not, not very friendly. And, um, yeah, so I, you know, I was probably a guy that was worried about protecting myself and probably a guy that was worried about thinking I could fix everything. So people don't get pissed off and beat the shit out of me or whatever. But, um, when I finally realized like, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm the guy making bad decisions. Maybe I'm, then I was like, Oh, all right. So I actually did what he told me to do. I look like a, a total idiot. I'm sure. But, but my kids, this was in about a week period. My kids and I, I, I got them out to safety. We, we, we were out of that situation and I had the leverage I needed to, to, to write, you know, write the situation. But me and the kids were on our own and I, and I in the bathroom and I'm talking to myself, like I said, I'll probably look like an idiot. And I just was like, dude, what's your problem? Like, who are you? What is your deal? And when I made that honest assessment, and it was the first time I'd ever done that in my life. When I made an honest assessment, I was just like, man, these are great things about you. And these are really bad things about you. Ooh. 
and you got to decide which way you're going to go. Like, who are you going to be? Mm-hmm. You want and this, be, yeah. Sorry, sorry. This was the this was basically the impetus to write your your first book, winning in the middle mm-hmm. of the pack. Correct. Well, it started it because um, I don't know if this resonates with with, with you or any, anybody that listens, but I think a lot of people, if you're raised in an unsafe environment, you're used to uh, re- reacting to what what you think others need. So I was always worried about like, what do I need to do? So my mom's not going to get violent. What do I need to do so that I can make the teacher happy? What do I need to do so that the boss won't fire me? It wasn't like, like I was worried about making everybody else happy. So I didn't even know about me. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. As, as someone who goes to therapy um, myself, that makes a lot of sense. Like I, I feel like a common theme from um my my therapy sessions is like is like how do you prioritize your own happiness like how do you start to care more about yourself than like what others think about you or how you shape the situation around you to 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 be successful like i know um i i like i would say like i'm a recovering people pleaser and like for a, a long part of my life i i lived thinking about like what do i need to do to keep everybody else happy in this moment yep. even if it's at the like sacrificing my own well-being to get there. Yeah, and you're probably super capable, right? You're probably super smart. You're able to solve problems. You're able to come into a situation and fix it. But I mean, honestly, right? That's it's just okay. I'm capable. I'm the guy. I'm the guy, right? Mm. But meanwhile, what you're doing is trying to make everybody else happy, which is something you can't do. You're trying to maybe prevent uh, bad things from them, which you can't do. You know, everything is about trying to control the outcome with other people and you can't do that. So where winning in the middle of the pack came from, it, it actually, uh, a germ, uh, the, the germ of the idea came from the very first like kind of big event that I did. So I couldn't run. I couldn't, I didn't know what a bike was, right? I was in my late thirties. I'd never done anything athletic. I'm, I'm an overweight smoker. And I just said like, like go figure it out who you're going to be. Okay. So I signed up for a half Ironman a couple of months later. I don't know Ooh. what the hell that is. <laughs> wow. That's I mean, it, uh, honestly, crazy. As somebody, as somebody, as somebody who like who 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 like has like moderate experience with with like endurance stuff and like yeah. likes to spend a lot of time doing endurance activities and came from an athletic background, yeah, like my whole life, I hear that and I my the questions that come up in my mind are like, how did you get your body to accept? The like torture that you then put that you put. You it don't through. know. <laughs> so if you don't know. You, you don't know, right? And you asked me a question earlier. Like, is my body wrecked? My body's not wrecked because I didn't do anything. I never moved. You started fresh. I didn't have miles of, of of you know. I mean, I was never an athlete. I never mm-hmm. did anything to wreck my body. So I didn't know any better. So I said, well, well, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop smoking. I'm gonna I'm gonna lose some weight, and I'm I buy some running shoes, and I try to run down the down the street. I couldn't make it down the street. I couldn't even mm-hmm. make it two minutes, like jogging at a 12 minute pace. I couldn't make, I couldn't make it two minutes. And then I go, okay, well, you got to be better than that. So I'll run a mile, I'll run a 5k, I'll run a 10k. Hey, what's this thing called a triathlon? Oh, all right. I'll try a half, half Ironman. So I roll up to the start line and it's a wave start. So there, you know, different age groups go at different times and I'm a little bit older age group. So I'm not first, first one out there. So I, I, I walk up to the start line and as I get there, guys, I'm like, Oh shit. Like everybody's a freaking Greek God. 
I'm like, <laughs> there's not an ounce of fat between any of them. They all look like athletes. They're like, they belong there. I don't belong there. I'm like, what the hell? They're probably looking at me thinking what an idiot I am. Right. Ooh. And I, and I'm thinking here I am, here I am. Like I got to prove myself. I got to, you know, show that I'm worthy. Or whatever. I, I got, I'm worried about other, what people think. And then the gun goes off and I watch these Greek gods and goddesses go, go racing down the river. And I'm like, yep, they're athletes. I'm out of here. And I, as I go to leave, I look at the start line and there's some dude flopped over on his back. And there's another guy like swimming in circles. And there's another guy like, trying to get himself to will himself into the water. Cause obviously he's afraid of water. And I'm like, well, they don't fucking care. Like they don't, nobody, <laughs> they don't care that anybody's and, and honestly, nobody's watching them. Everybody's just doing their own race. And I'm like, dude, when you're in the middle of the pack, nobody's cares. Nobody's watching. You're just Ooh. there to do what you do for you. And I'm going like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> right. Instead of doing like, like, like what you said, instead of doing something that, uh, what are others going to think of me? instead of trying to please or look good or whatever, I'm like, Oh, nobody's watching and nobody cares. How cool is that? Yeah. I'm the only one that's watching and caring. That's, that's, let me see what I can do. And uh, in the, in like, at, at, when you made that realization and decided to, again, it's like, when I hear you say like, Oh, I decided to do an Ironman. I'm like, that's fucking crazy. And then, and then whenever I ever hear anybody say, well, I decided to write a book. I'm like, Oh fuck, that's fucking crazy. Like that to me is just as torturous, if not more torturous than, you know, doing uh, 50 Ironmans. Um, when you decided to write the book, like what was that process like? How did that feel to take the, these things that you were that you were seeing around you, that you were seeing within yourself, that you wanted to like translate to others? Did you find that to be a you know a hard endeavor? Was was writing something that you used to do, or was yeah. that this also just something that you're like, nah, fuck, I'm going to write a book too? Like, <laughs> no, no, no. I was always a writer, but I never, <laughs> I never had finished a project that was successful, right? I'd done some screenplays, did some books and had some representation and things kind of went down the road, but it never did. And then life got in the way and, you know, you, you priorities change. I mean, yeah. how many people do you know that, that, that work their whole lives to be a musician and then life gets in the way. And then, you know, 10 years later, they pick up a t guitar and you're like, I didn't know you could play a guitar. <laughs> like you're fucking amazing. Right. <laughs> and they go, well, you know, but uh, right. So so what I, what I recognized is that, um, I didn't go to college. You know, I, I was homeless. You wouldn't expect I'd be the guy that's running a hundred million dollar business for a wall street firm, but I was that guy. Just nobody knew, you know, that I, I wasn't that guy. Right? I just, I just acted <laughs> as if I was that guy. So I was pretty successful in life, but I never knew how to apply all the lessons I learned to me. Right. I was a good leader, but I couldn't apply the lessons to me. I didn't have any awareness of me. Then when I started doing athletics, when I started doing Ironmans and, and marathons and ultra marathons or whatever, I was learning lessons because I it was all about me. Right. I'm not there to please anyone. Nobody's telling me to do nobody's paying me to go there. It's all me. And I'm like, wait a second, there's a lot of the same lessons. Ooh. Like between running a really big business and and being successful in life or learning about life or whatever and doing endurance athletics, there's a lot of parallels. And so I said, oh, shit, I, that's that's kind of cool. Like, I'm the kind of guy that didn't know till later in life that life wasn't about pleasing others. Ooh. So if, if if I'm not the only guy, maybe there's a lot of people out there that are that are that are that need to adopt that middle of the pack mentality where you're doing it for you and not because you think everybody's watching or anybody cares mm -hmm. on, on the <laughs> topic of like, on the topic of, of the idea of everybody of like, of caring what other people think and feeling like somebody 
where everybody is looking at you and judging you and, 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 you know, making judgments on whatever it is you're doing or the quality uh-huh. of what you're doing or how you look or whatever. Um, it's something very ironic about it because, because I, I, on some level, like everybody, I, I, most people deal with some level of that, of feeling like they're being judged and that they're comparing themselves to others. And, you know, I'm going to do this thing. And I run yoga studios and, and when I used to teach like all the time, you know, that's one of the, one, that's one of the things that's like the biggest barrier to people coming in and starting something new. Uh, and in this case it was yoga. Everybody's going like, to know I'm like, an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> stepping into the studio and going like, Oh my God, look at these people. They look like they know exactly what they're doing. They look like they've been doing it for years. I'm here for my first time. I don't know my foot from my hand mm-hmm. and I look like I look dumb and everybody thinks I look dumb. And it's like, I would say this often in classes, like prior, like kind of in the little introduction before classes, like if everybody thinks that everybody's looking at you, then no one's looking at anybody. Like you're all just there. You're all your own. You're all there by yourself. You're in a, you're in a lonely room where you can be whatever you want. Cause if everyone thinks that we're looking at you, no one's looking at anybody. I remember the first time I realized that lesson in one of your yoga classes, I just started sleeping in class. <laughs> and I was like, fucking, I don't take a nap. I'd start fucking laying down and napping. Well. I come over and give yeah. you and give you a kick. Because like that because it's probably it it probably is the single most liberating or could be the single most liberating thing in somebody's life to be to be freed or at least partially freed yeah. from the so need, from, from the you, judgment of, pe- of and the that's people. beautiful that you explain that to people because there's two ends of the spectrum right there's the end of the spectrum which is people like me who didn't know that i shouldn't care what people think that i didn't the people weren't actually judging me they're too busy running their own lives but i here i am thinking i've got to do that right i mean i could literally do abc come home as a kid and my mom would be saying you're the greatest kid in the world. And then tomorrow I could do ABC and I would come home. My mom would beat the shit out of me going, why are you such a fucking loser? Right. And so, so, so you, when you grow up in an environment where you got to try to make other people happy, that's what you think life's all about, but it's not. Mm -hmm. So that's one end of the spectrum. Then there's the, the other end of the spectrum. And that's the guy that says, you know, screw you. I'm just a dick. And that's just the way it is. I rule the world and F you, I don't care what anybody thinks. And I'm Mm. like, I kind of have nothing in common. Like does anybody ever tell Michael Jordan what to think or how to act? Do you think he (laughs) cares what anybody thinks? Of course not. Right. So I don't have anything in common with that guy. I certainly don't have anything in (laughs) common with the guy who could care less. Like I, I don't care if I'm living on my mother's sofa in the basement at 40. I'm playing video games and doing meth. I like, that's who I am. Fuck you. I don't have anything in common with any of those people, but I'm like the person in your yoga class. who's like, man, if I'm trying this cause it's important to me. And Ooh. if you tell me nobody's looking, all right, I'll believe you. Nobody's looking. <laughs> and then when you just try to do what you're doing, it becomes for the right reasons. It, it's really hard to um, like being, I think of this idea of being a recovering people pleaser. It's, it's hard because like on one hand, I know like speaking for myself personally, um, I really value the people pleasing aspect of me of me because I feel like that's a person that genuinely cares about other people. Like I care about, you know, their experience in this world and I want it to be a great experience for them. And, you know, sometimes at my own ex- expense, I will try to like accommodate things, even if it, you know, adds stress to my day or makes me feel uncomfortable. And 
you know, through working through therapy, I've been working a lot of like getting rid of that sort of part of me, but I've, I've had this sort of like thought during that process of, of like, like that I don't totally want to get rid of it because mm-hmm. I like that part of me for Like, I don't want to be Michael Jordan. Like, I don't want to be that guy's like, fuck everybody else. It only met mm-hmm. like only my experience matters. But also there's this like weird balance because you also want to be able to understand what's important to you and what like your boundaries are and how you, um, yeah. take but care of your own well-being. Yeah. And amplify that if you're capable. So how many times have you said, I know you, cause I'm probably a lot like you, how many times you've been in a work environment where you're like, fuck, man, I don't want to tell anybody what to do. I'm just going to do it. Like, cause I can do it better than anybody else. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like, like I'll host, I love hosting, right? I have 20 people all over at the house and I'm pouring drinks, I'm barbecuing, I'm cooking here, I'm doing this, I'm doing it. And I got, I'm on, I'm in control, man. Everybody is being taken care of. Everybody's having a good Ooh. time. And, and my wife, we've been married now for about seven years or so. She comes over to me a couple of years ago and she goes, hey, I need to ask you a favor. I go, what? She said, I know you can do all this shit. She goes, but you're ruining people's experience because you won't even let them help. Like, I know <laughs> you can do it. I, I You're capable. You're ma- Everybody's happy. You're making every, you, you, all the food's <laughs> great. All the drinks are great. But you're taking away people's ability to enjoy themselves and try it. Why don't you let mm. other people do some stuff? Mm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Pers- I, my, my wife personally? wants you to to, yeah. to to give me 70% of what you got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I was going to say, personally, I fucking love that. And I can't wait to come to your house. David, just to, just to be taken yeah. care you of. You know, it's funny, though, is also, though, to, like in your personal relationships, I don't know if you you relate to this too, Dave, but, but um, I know, like, for me, sometimes it's at the detriment of, like, my, like, my girlfriend. Like, sometimes, sometimes I'll be like, oh, you're struggling right now. You're going through a challenging period of time. I want to make that easier for you. So I'm going to do these things so that therefore you don't have to go through that struggle or that challenge. But then, you know, I've talked about this with my therapist, like what, what message does that send her that she's not capable of dealing with that, that she's not strong and that she can't, you know, go through that experience and learn and grow as a human being. And so, yeah, there's like, it's hard. Like it's, a, yeah, it's hard. and then it's easy to get into like overthinking situations too, which is even more hard. Well, how do you like something that I'm interested in terms of like, it sounds like with you, David, you have this moment with your friend mm-hmm. and that just seems to be like this timely moment that catches you at the, at a time where you are for whatever reason, receptive to it. And maybe there's, and maybe there is a reason behind that. Um, but like when you, when you, like with you, Brian, when you're talking about like people pleasing, like when or how do you recognize that the behavior that you have, which obviously is masked as a, as a, uh, mm-hmm. positive thing, you know, mm-hmm. because you're making, trying to make, you're trying to make people feel better or, or, and, and accom- be accommodating and whatever. It's got these like kind of like superficial positive tones to it. Like, how do yeah. you, how do you start to recognize that it's not what you need or what you should be doing and differentiating between the positive aspects of those things and like how it is actually, you know, you sacrificing you for its sake. It's a great question. It's very complicated. I don't know that I have the right answers. I can just tell you what worked for me is starting to rewire my brain to understand that if I'm doing it because I think I have to, then that's the wrong reason. If I'm doing it because of something other than it's really based in a grounded, authentic, it's what I want to do. Okay. Sometimes I want to be the guy in control at the party. 
Okay. Sometimes I, I like that. Okay. It's like, let's me know. Sometimes I want to be the guy doing a construction project and running it. Sometimes I, I, I want to, you know, in a, in a creative environment, I want to be the guy running it. But a lot of times I don't need to be that. Mm-hmm. And I'm being controlling and I'm taking away other people's ability to add to it. And yes, I can do it and I'm capable, but that's maybe not the best way to go about it. It might not have the best outcome. It, it might not be the best, Ooh. most authentic thing. So, you know, it's like, if I feel like I have to do something, I go, yeah, do you really have to? And uh, okay, you could, you could do it, but do you have to do it? Like, if you don't have to do it, maybe you should not try to do it. Yeah. And like, how do you know, like, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe theoretically we could just like keep on going down to like smaller and smaller layers. So I don't, so if that's, if that's what it sounds like, then no, maybe we don't go there. But like, like, how do you, like, is it like a setting up of triggers? Like, like when this like feeling or this thought comes up that you like recognize, cause like, you know, if you're wearing, if you're wearing glasses, let's say you're wearing glasses, the glasses don't weigh anything and the lenses are so big that you can't see the frames. Right. To your eyes, you're just looking through. You're just looking at reality yeah. through your eyes. You don't see the lens because you can't tell that you're wearing glasses because the lenses, because the frames are way too wide and they don't weigh anything, so you can't tell they're on your face. But it's mm-hmm. not. It's only. It's only when. It's only when if we can follow this fucking metaphor that I'm making up on the spot. I'm working with if you. If you take the glasses off, then obviously you realize, oh my god, I had lenses on. I didn't even know. Yep. Or it's like you've got. Or, or is it like, oh, you see a speck of dust on the lens and you go, wait, that can't be on my eye. So I must be wearing a lens. Like, you, like, like, follow, like you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like there's like yeah, a little yeah. trigger that, no, I that get, there's a yeah. trigger that comes up that goes, wait a second. I'm not thinking about this, right? Like I'm, mm. I'm, I'm doing that thing again. I'm, I'm doing this thing that I'm trying to work with. You know, do you know I, what I mean? I can, t- I can tell you the, the way that I know I'm wearing glasses is, is my therapist is like, yo, you got your glasses on. <laughs> like I, I find out about it in therapy. Like I'm like describing the scene that I'm seeing looking through my eyes. And she's like, do you notice you got glasses on right now? <laughs> I'm like, fuck. Okay. I had glasses on. And then I, I, I try to be more aware of that. I, I mean, I just touch my face. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, look, you bring up great points. I, I want to ask, ask you guys, like, like, has there been something that you didn't know about yourself or you definitely didn't like that now you do know about yourself or now you do like? But for like, for me, years, you you're just like, I, I hate a fish. Now I love fish. What, whatever it is. What is it? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I have a bunch of those things. I have a lot of, I have a lot, a lot of the, like I jumped dr- directly to the emotional or sort of level of self-awareness of the, my behaviors through going to therapy. Like I learn these things about myself all the time where I'm like, I fucking hate that I do this thing. And then like I go through therapy and talk about that thing and we go back to childhood experiences or this past trauma or whatever and I find out the reason why that thing is part of the way that I behave and then I like it I just like I like it because I appreciate where it came from I suppose um so that's I know that's a really direct way less so about you know like did I used to hate corn and now do I like corn I don't know that is a tough question though Mm -hmm. I mean you asked that and I I don't know like I, I I don't know I would have to really think on that. I think to like figure out like what, what's one thing about myself that I have completely shifted my view on, you know, that at one point I, I probably didn't like about 
but now I do. I mean, I guess I suppose like, like maybe this makes, maybe this doesn't make sense, but like, you know, and people that listen to this podcast kind of understand this, but, um, like the, the, when I was younger, like the idea of living with cystic fibrosis, I fucking hated that. And I was like, very not okay with it. Um, mm-hmm. But then I got to a point where I started to view it in a really different way where I went, Hey, this actually has made me who I am. And, and I, I actually like, I'm, I'm, I'm very okay with having this life altering disease. And, and it's a part of me that I, that I actually really appreciate because it's made me who I am and I really enjoy who I've become. Um, yeah. So I guess I just answered the question. That it's yeah. Like, that's that a great answer. Case. And yeah. the reason that I asked it is because if you're trying to be, it's going to sound a little out there, but if you're trying to be one with yourself, if you're trying to be your best life, if you're trying you're to, you're talking a, to three yoga teachers here. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so, you know, if you're trying to be at one, then, then it, it, it creates the need for honesty. Mm-hmm. You just got to be, you just got to learn how to be honest. And we are not wired to be honest with ourselves. And why is that? Because I'll tell you what happened beginning of the year. I'm working out in my garage. I drop a 15 K a dumbbell on my toe. Oh, okay. Man. Now, the honest thing is, accidents happen. It sucks, and I'm going to pay a price for it. And I mean, gosh, at least I'm in the gym working out at 10 o'clock at night uh, while my wife's traveling. And uh, yeah, sometimes I'm a little careless or whatever. That's the truth. But what do I tell myself? Oh my god, you're such a fucking idiot! Like mm. I scream to myself a thousand times about what an idiot I am. Right, right? now, that wasn't very honest but it's the way we're wired to think about things. And so uh, to unwire things, to be your best self, to be your authentic self is to understand a lot sooner. And to be honest with yourself, to know you're wearing glasses. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, come on, yeah. Man, right. Let, let's be real. Let's be honest. You're not an idiot. You can't control the outcome. Sometimes bad things happen. You got to accept it, learn from it, move on. Right. Mm-hmm. You carry yeah. it as a chip or you you lie about it to yourself or whatever eventually you're going to wake up and you're going to be wrecked. That, that reminds me of, um, that, and I told the guys this, but my therapist said the other day in a session, she was talking about, I was talking about being the best version of myself. She said, can I suggest a new word for you? And I said, what's that? And she said, try using honest, the most honest version of yourself. And I like immediately in that moment, I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's so, it feels so much better. It feels so much better. Mm-hmm. It's hard, especially if you're a people pleaser, because you think people are judging you. So you have to be perfect. Well, honest truth is they're not judging you, but more honest than that is you ain't perfect. (laughs) And and, and neither is anybody else. And and so just like, let it go. Just be honest. Just, just like, just, just let it go. And, and, and when I stood in front of that mirror and said, okay, I'm gonna take this honest assessment of myself was really, really hard to do. (laughs) But the next step in the process for me was just to forgive myself and let it go. Mm-hmm. like okay you're not perfect i know you thought you were perfect but you're not and just okay I'll let it go like you didn't know any better mm-hmm. right okay i know you found yourself in relationship after relationship where it was a total loser that you tried to fix and you couldn't fix it well you weren't supposed to fix it you're not you know that wasn't your problem and now you know better so stop picking losers mm-hmm. like just forgive yourself free your mind like let it go just let it go. It was a hard thing to do, especially yeah. if you're a people pleaser, especially if you're worried about the way others perceive you or the way you think they might perceive you. Mm. It's hard to do.
Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts for sure I, I love where this conversation has gone it's like it's 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 gone in a direction that I was not anticipating whatsoever um and <laughs> and uh, but I well, love we it. have like, something else uh, to talk about uh, we do we, <laughs> I mean I mean so we're, like we haven't even scratched the surface here really because um you know David had we've been talking about David's transformation from this one this one like life that he lived into this this new sort of found like zest for life and 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 pushing his body to the limit and and how that like developed into this book um but we we haven't even touched on the fact that a number of years later you wrote another book mm-hmm. um and this book uh cycle of lives is is actually something that I think will really resonate with a lot of our listeners um because you know, this podcast started by sharing the stories, the personal stories of people who are living with illness Yep. with the, with the intention of showing that like humor can exist within the hardships of illness. Um, but really at the heart of like what we're doing is we're just sharing the emotional journeys that people have gone through when dealing with name the illness it's there. Right. Yep. Cycle of Lives is uh, a book that is very much about sharing the emotional journeys that people have gone through who have lived with or are currently living with uh, dealing with cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to to hear like how this came to be. What what was the impetus for you to write um, Cycle of Lives and give us a bit of a, a, a breakdown on like sure where that book came from and where where it ended up. Well, it'll totally resonate with you guys and with your audience because it's exactly that. So at that moment in that like two week period where I escaped the house and got my kids and we're good and I'm standing in front of the mirror going like, who are you and figure it out. I got this like, like this aha moment that I've got this endless journey ahead of me. And it's like day one of the rest of my life. I'm like, fuck, man, this is awesome. Like I get to go figure out who I'm going to be and I get to worry about me and I get to like forgive myself for being an idiot and oh my god this is all great right and at that time within that same period of time my sister who I was pretty close to called me up and said hey I I have terminal terminal cancer and I'm like oh because she had come out of our traumatic childhood a much better person than me she was happily married she's comfortable with who she was she was very authentic very connected you know like good balanced person a great kids, great husband. And I was like touched by the fact that her journey, mine's very long and who knows where it's going to lead me. Her journey is very short. We know where it's going to end. And I was kind of touched by that. So I really paid attention to what she was going through. And what I realized guys was exactly what you know, which is people are really good about dealing with the tasks related to their cancer or their trauma. How do I see a better doctor? How do I get taken care of? How do I navigate insurance? How do I get time off of work? How do I get a meal to my house? How can I get the kids watched? They're really good about the tasks. But when it comes to the emotions, how do you feel about it? It's like, zip it. Like, we don't talk about that kind of stuff. 
And it's a very weird thing. It's not just men, it's women. It's not just strangers. It's people that are very, very close. It's just hard to have those hard conversations about. She's like, what does it feel like? Like, like, how are you doing? Like, really? Those hard questions are tough. And so when I was paying attention, I realized everybody had some degree of experience with that thought of, I'm finding it difficult to have hard conversations. I don't let people in. People don't let me in. I don't know how to ask a question. I don't want to sound like an asshole. And so I said, why is that? So I just found a bunch of people that I could go deep with and have very, very deep conversations with. I talked to a a ton of people for a couple of years, getting really, really, really personal with them. I mean, the deepest, darkest places of their mind, not like a therapist would, because I'm no therapist, but just as an authentic human that says, I need to learn from your story so that other people could be empowered with a few tools to understand how to deepen the relationships in their lives. So they gave me that pass. We, we spent a couple of years and then I, I brought the stories to the book. Mm. And how did you find the people? Like what, what was the, mm. what was the process of, cause like it, I find it really interesting because again, like there are, there are a lot of similarities to like what we do. Um, and, and what you've done with the book. And uh, luckily for us, like when we started this podcast, it was just word of mouth and people started reaching out to us. And now we have like, you know, we have like 3000 people on a list that are waiting to come on the show um, for yourself. Like, you know, and specifically you're, 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 you're dialing this in the cancer specifically. So like, what was the, you know, was it just folks that you knew or people that you knew who knew people? Like, how did you find yeah. the, the people that you wanted to cover in the book? It was a long process, right? So so basically what I discovered was this. I discovered that point A, whether they were uh, an, eight, an, an eighth grader that went on a, on a field trip to a hospital and walked in the cancer ward and said, I'm going to become a doctor. Or if it was a patient that encountered cancer at that point, or it was a medical professional that understood the disparities in, in, in health care for people with cancer, whatever the point A was that they encountered, quote unquote, cancer. How did their journey from A to B on an emotional level, B being today? So from that moment till today, how did that journey on an emotional level, how was it affected by all the traumas that happened before point A? Mm. Right. So Jeremy, not how do you fucking deal with cystic fibrosis, cystic fibrosis, but how in the world did the childhood and young adult and adolescent traumas that I'm sure you had, mm-hmm. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure, I'm sure you had them. Everybody's had them. How did those affect your ability or inability to connect with people on a, an emotional level when you're going through something difficult? Mm-hmm. That was a question. That was a, a, a question that seemed to me to be reasonable because when I spoke to people, yeah, it was about their cancer. It was about them being a doctor. It was about a nurse, being a survivor, whatever. But you know what it was more about? It was more about, walking in on their mother when they were six years old uh, and the mother was killing themselves. It was about um, uh, a drug addiction. It was about aban- being abandoned by a parent. It was about being in an abusive relationship. It, w- it was all like their emotional makeup was not about the trauma of their disease. Mm-hmm. Their emotional makeup was about these traumas that were in their life mm-hmm. prior to that. And it's like, when a guy, when you walk up to a guy and you're like, dude, I know something's going on. What is it? What's going on? He's like, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm, I'm cool, man. I'm all good. Meanwhile, he's dealing with fucking terminal testicular cancer, but he's not going to tell you because he's, you know, he, he's a macho dude. He can't tell you that. Mm. Right. He can't let you in. So I said, ah, 
So I called hospitals. I called cancer centers. I called friends. Mm-hmm. I'm like, who do you know that's got a really interesting story? And I, they go, what do you mean by interesting? And I go, well, you know, like, like, like interesting emotional issues over whatever they're dealing with now. But hey, who's got some background? Who's got some a story that you know? And boy, I came across some amazing people. What what were the things that surprised you the most going through that process? Well, I was hoping that everybody that reads a book is like me, right? In the in that I assumed to think what people were going through. I had no idea what people went through. I had no idea. Okay. Everybody I talked to said, I don't know why we're talking. My life's not that interesting. And and then I and I would talk to them and I'd be like, Holy fuck, man, their lives are ridiculously interesting. You were on the last boat that left Saigon, you know, in the fall of Vietnam and came to America as a refugee and went through all this nonsense and, and this you know ridiculous amount of, of, of discrimination and grew up to be a, a an OBGYN and taking care of people. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you you uh you know, you 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 survived cancer five different times as an adult at five different times over a 35 year period as an adult, but you didn't think you'd see day one of your adulthood because you were stuck in a basement being beat up for four years by your first boyfriend. I mean, what the hell? And people can and then people go, it's funny because my editor would say said this to me. I, I wrote the 15 stories and she goes, well, what about your story? And I go, ah, it's not that interesting. <laughs> what are you talking about? Right? <laughs> He's like, you got to talk about this and this and this. And this. So the long answer to your question, but the thing in common is everybody has this remarkable, crazy life they probably experienced some insane trauma that we would have no understanding how they got through it because we we're just busy living our own lives Mm -hmm. um and 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 so that was kind of the first bit of common ground was i would Mm -hmm. just assume to know what people were thinking or what they were feeling what they had gone through i had no idea you know you know it's really interesting when i hear you say that is like how is how the things that we think make ourselves interesting the things that we think make us interesting are the things that we think that nobody else has ever gone through. Yeah. But really it's like the things that make us interesting are the things that so many other people have, have gone through. Mm. So many people have, have experienced, but never talked about like the things that the things that we all have in common, but, but are hesitant to share. Like, like, you, do you know what I mean? Like all these yeah. people going, I'm yeah. not in, like, I'm not interesting. All I've gone through is this, you know, horrific abuse. That is like right. a tale as old as time. That is yeah. super interesting that a ton of people can relate to and they could come together on if they were open enough uh, to share it or not, not open enough, but, um, uh, you know, like, like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Brave. Like, bra- bra- brave enough or, 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 or felt like they could uh, or had the capacity to share. Yeah. Like those are the, mo- like the most interesting things are, the most interesting things that happen are are sometimes the most like common heartbreaking yeah. things the that happen to us. The other thing that you, I'm hearing you say too, David, is like talking about like um, discovering your true authentic self really can only be done by acknowledging the the past um, and understanding like where you really come from. And and I think that like not to like keep coming back to therapy, but like I mean that's a question that you start a therapy session off with when you first go is like tell me about your past. Tell me about the challenges you've been through. And when you start to really dig into those things, you start to uncover who you really are, I suppose. 
Yeah, let me just interject real quick in that also because we're so wired to have our inside voice protect what's going on, to create the narrative, like we put that trauma in a box, we lock it up in our heads and we just keep it, keep guard on it. Every once in a while, something leaks out. It's usually pretty toxic, but we, we, we keep it all hidden. And when you start to talk about it, when you uncover, when you face it, it's freaking hard, man. It's so hard. It's so hard. I had recently just did a, 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 a ayahuasca sitting, a three night ayahuasca sitting. And, and I didn't go into it trying to find it. I just went with an open mind and said, what's going to happen. And, and on the third night, something happened that literally showed me where 90% of my freaking issues stem from this one childhood experience. Mm. And I was brought back to it. I had blocked it away and it answered a like a thousand questions in my head of who I was and all the problems that I had. And I'm just like, man, you got to have some compassion for yourself. Cause yeah. I now you get where it came from. And mm. it's like, wow, what you can uncover by just creating the narrative, whether that's talking to someone through therapy, whether that's going on a, a self-discovery, whether that's doing some, some writing or expressive, you know, writing, journaling, whatever. Um, it's fascinating. Cause well, you know, what, why not? Why not live authentically and honestly? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I had to throw that. No, in. no, it's okay. I, I mean, I, I one thing you know, we started this conversation off with like the how how like your bike and how endurance sports have played a big role in your life. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but I know that like your bike played a big role in the process of writing this book. Yeah. Um, can you can you give us a little bit of insight into what that process was like and, and the reason why you included um, that long ride? Yeah, I thought it was a bit gimmicky. Like I, I started out as a gimmick, right? Because in doing my research into talking to people, I, I realized that uh, that there's really only two things that connect all humans. Now, I'm not saying every single person ever alive, but most people that will ever run to our lives, there's only two things that connect us. Is one is our love of story. Who doesn't love a good story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, you, if somebody wants to sell me something, I got no time for it. But if you tap me on the shoulder, look me deep in the eyes, it goes, dude, I got a story for you. I'm like, bring it on, baby. Right? <laughs> I want to I hear it. So we're connected by story and we're connected by emotion. Mm. I might not have the same emotional responses, but we have basically the same basket of emotions. And and so if we're all connected by that, once I had written all the stories, I said, well, okay, what better way to connect the people? Cause I'd been talking to them on the phone for a couple of years. I never met most of them in person. I said, what better way to connect the people than to get on my bike and be the thread that connects them. I'm going to go visit them for the first time. I'm going to connect the stories with my bike ride. So it started out kind of as a gimmick. And then the, when I got into it, I realized, well, holy cow, man, uh, it lets me talk to uh, tons of people every day and, and uh, get reinforced of this whole, like, I have no idea what the hell, what do I say to somebody who's going through something difficult? I don't know what the fuck to say. Right. So, and then I also found out how lonely of a place it could be. Nobody gets me. Nobody knows me. Uh, you know, it's very isolating. Even if you're self-isolating, it could be a very lonely place to be going through trauma, especially disease. Um, and, and so I met people along the way. I had these crazy experiences. I also was able to process some of my own issues and come at peace. Cause I don't know about you guys, but man, if you're doing a 12 hour bike in the middle of Texas, you know, and you got nobody to talk to, but yourself and you're being authentic and 
raw and truthful, you can solve a lot of fucking problems. Yeah. Mm. And I did that for day after day after day. So the bike ride became that. And then when I, like I said, I wrote the book, I wrote the 15 stories. I sent it off to my editor and she goes, this is great. But what about your story? Mm. I go, ah, I'm not that interested. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to, (laughs) nobody wants to hear that crap. And she's like, absolutely not. Get, write a little narrative in between each story about the bike ride and, and and what brought you to that person, what connected you to them. Give a little intro, a little outro, and a little little bit about who you met along the way. And so the narrative is maybe fifteen percent of the book. The the stories are the other eighty five. Mm-hmm. And you you uh, you but for you know in that journey to meet those people, mm-hmm. um, for folks who are curious, you biked five thousand miles from California to Florida, and then from Florida up to New York, correct? Yes. In a very zigzaggy way. So <laughs> like I, I, you know, people didn't decide to live in a straight line. So, <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so yeah. I had to, I had to zigzag my way around and, and try to find everyone. And I didn't get to see everyone, but I, I got to see almost everyone in the book mm-hmm. and um, uh, along the way. And so, yeah, I, I zigzagged my way from California to Florida and then up to New York. I mean, 8,000 kilometers, 5,000 miles, 8,000 kilometers for anybody who is, you know, if you're wondering how far that is, it's about a straight line from Vancouver to London, England. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's far. Um, it's long. It's long. I, you know, one one thing it, again, I can, and I can't help but like kind of draw the parallels between the podcast and and um and your book. But um, one of the one of the one of the best parts about doing this podcast, I think I can can speak for all three of us when I say this, is that we've. Not only have we had the ability to meet really amazing people and have conversations with really amazing people, but the podcast has also brought into our lives a lot of people that have like stuck around, you know, like mm-hmm. we've made some like genuine lifelong friendships just by way of having a one hour conversation with someone on the podcast. And then that one hour just turns into years and years and years of friendship. Um, out of the conversations that you had um to you know to pull this book together do you stay in touch with any of the participants that were a part of the yeah, book i do uh quite a few so some people were one and done so mm-hmm. everybody had to super buy into the process sure of course because I, I had to say listen i gotta ask you questions nobody's ever asked you before and they're like ah i've already told everybody. everybody knows everything and then i get into it and i go what about this and they're like oh shit nobody's ever had the guts to ask me that before. <laughs> i don't know anybody okay so we had to, they had to buy into the process, which forced us to get super deep and close to each other. Right. So that was number one. Um, so uh, getting to know people in a very, very intimate, honest, revealing way and them trusting me to tell their story. Some people we were one and done, but other people it became uh, pretty close to, and some I'm, I'm still very, very close. A couple of them are my closest friends. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious um, about your sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the timeline of the book and your sister's uh, journey through cancer? Like, how did those sync up, and how did one inform the other? So, about 20 years ago is when I started going through that process of trans transformation and thinking that like I'm on day one of my life finally. Um, that's about the time that she got cancer. So mm-hmm. over the next three-ish years or so, I kind of developed into this mindset of, you know, winning in the middle of the pack and applying lessons to myself and trying to be my best self and being authentic, whatever. That's about the time that she died. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was like 2000. 
eight ish. So about 15 years ago. And then, uh, you know, life gets in the way you do a lot of other things. I embarked on this project for probably five years before the book came out Mm -hmm. because between finding everyone and framing the book and then interviewing people and then doing the bike ride and then writing a book that, that you hope is going to be good is a long process, uh, Mm -hmm. between editors and publishers and everybody throwing in their two cents. Um, and then the book came out. So, um, and that was the timeline on it. And, uh, yeah, she had a lot of effect on it because I, I was able to process my, my issues around losing my sister for mm-hmm. sure. I'm, I'm curious. Um, m- my mom had uh, cancer like five years ago now. Um, she's, she's doing well now, but we had started, uh, this podcast sort of just before she was diagnosed and, um, it was interesting because um, at the at the same time, it's kind of a long story, but in the at the same time that she was going through her treatment, we were filming this documentary about the podcast, and at at one point, the producer or director said to me, "He was like, hey, um, do you think do you think you're going to talk to your mom about her cancer? Because like you're having all these conversations with people. I said yeah. like, you know, like you you guys do this now. It's normal. You're trying to normalize this." But like, I've noticed that you haven't really talked to your mom about it. He was like, do you think you're going to talk to her about it? And I was like, well, I, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess I kind of have to. That's going to be hard. (laughs) And so, and so anyway, we like, he had kind of, he kind of encouraged me to do it. And, and they actually sat back in the room and filmed us while we were talking about this, having this like really raw, emotional conversation about it. But I thought it was interesting that like, you know, for me, it was really comfortable to talk to somebody else about their experience and ask them questions and be vulnerable with them. But I found it really difficult with my own mom, probably the closest person to me to like actually have that really tough, genuine, authentic conversation with. And um, I just wonder, like, you know, you obviously you have this ability to have these conversations with mm-hmm. all the people in the book, but are there things that you wish you know, 15 years earlier that you were able to talk to your sister about or, or do you feel like you were able to do that? Yeah, the time? It's a great question. And right. Uh, very few people are well equipped to have those really hard conversations, especially with people you're close to, because you got a certain dynamic between you. And now you're changing the dynamic. I remember talking to a buddy and, and, and he was like, man, I totally regret like, like my friend died of cancer and we grew up together. And when he was feeling good, like I went over to his house and I tried to talk to him, but he just wanted to eat a bite of pizza and watch this, watch a game. And when he came over to my house, he was like, order a pizza. Let's watch the game. And I could never talk to him because I just wished I could have talked to him. And I said, dude, maybe you were the only guy that he didn't have to talk to about this stuff. So don't beat yeah. yourself up over it but to change the narrative. It's tough, man, because you don't want to invade her space and she doesn't want to seem weak and she doesn't want to burden you and you don't want to like invade. There's a million reasons why. Right. Um, Totally. Fortunately for me, I think we're probably 90 percent with my my sister and I were 90 percent. She made it safe for me to ask her questions and to talk to her about really difficult stuff and uh, vice versa. And I think part of that stemmed from our joint openness about the trauma of our childhood mm-hmm. so we yeah. had that kind of common ground it, it's interesting because um you know my my mom has said to me in the past like separately and even before she had cancer she talked to me about 
um, the things that she didn't say, she lost her mom to cancer when her, her mom was like, uh, I don't know, in her mid fifties and, and my mom was in her late twenties. Mm-hmm. And this is like the same time that I was going through my mom's cancer diagnosis. And my mom had told me that like in the past that she had left a lot of things unsaid with her mom's passing. And, um, and I noticed that when my grandfather got sick, like many years later after my mom lost her mom, uh, my mom would go to the hospital like every day and like always talk to him. And, and I'm sure that in that moment she didn't leave anything left unsaid. Right. But it's weird knowing this like history of that dynamic. And then my mom going through that experience and wondering like, well, you know, does she want me to just be her son? Does she want to protect me from the challenges that she's going through? Does she have somebody else that she can talk to? Like, what is the right thing to say? But you also mm. don't know, like, I mean, it takes two people to dance. Like it's, yeah. It's not just what one person wants or the other. It, it it takes a conversation to figure out what does work best, but those conversations are what are in fact mm. difficult to have in the first place. So mm. it, it can be really fucking confusing. Uh, before we, uh, before we move to that, a, a question that I'm very curious uh, about what this means to you, David, is um, <clears throat> if the two things that allow me to stay aware of who I am and be like objective and authentic about that mm-hmm. are my training in, uh, in yoga and philosophy, yoga philosophy, basically Hindu philosophy, um, and endurance athletics. Like they are the two things that allow me to like stay mm-hmm. honest with myself and by endurance athletics, I mean the act of voluntarily going to hell and being there for what seems like an eternity and returning from that experience. And I've had a bunch of those experiences over time, you know, like others much more intense than others. The one that stands out in my head right now is I was in, I was on Maui just a few weeks, just a couple weeks ago. And I, biked from sea level to the observatory there to 3000 meters. It's a 50 kilometer climb. And I wanted to quit at so many times. I thought that my body would (laughs) shut down. I wanted to just fucking kill myself. And you stop that activity and you you're done. And you are on top of the world. Like there's just, there's, there's so many lessons to be learned. And, and like, I just, I, a type two fun, type two fun. The fun that is not fun at all when you're doing it. And then when you're done it, all you want to do is do it again because of all the, all the, all the benefits that flood in after the fact. What is that? What is that to you? What is that experience when, you know, you're, when you're on the bike or you're in the water mm-hmm. or you're running, whatever, what does that mean to you? Oh, there's two of us in the room that know exactly what that's all about. And that is, if you were worried about the outcome, the process wouldn't mean anything, right? I'll do whatever it takes to get this person to be happy. I'll do whatever it takes to solve the problem because like, that's the outcome, right? I'll do whatever it takes to get to the top of the mountain. That's an outcome-related thing. I, I totally had to rewire myself to go, no, it's the process that is what's the deal. Mm-hmm. What can I learn? What can I teach? What can I get back? What can I absorb? I mean, you cannot fake your way 
through a 12 hour run. I've done a 25 hour straight run before. Okay. You cannot fake your way through it. You could prep all you want. You could be present. You could do whatever. And it, the process of it is amazing. And the lessons learned is amazing. And you know what? I, the outcome didn't really even matter. And so I think that, that you're right. Like, you know, it's just be present. You don't control the outcome. You control the way you interact with the process, the way you, the way you are here and now is what you can control. You can't control the outcome. And I, I literally have known this for years, but it didn't make sense to me even till very recently that I was always focused on the outcome. The outcome is not, it's not in your control, man. Bad things happen to good people. You can't control that. Bad things happen to you even when your intentions are great. You can't, you can't control that. But you know, you can't control is the process. And that's what I love about things like being present, yoga, endurance athletics, expressive writing, um, having authentic one-on-ones with people, what you guys are doing with your podcast. That's that it's the process. Like you didn't know how this thing was going to turn out, but you're present and we're, we're having a, a real moment, right? It's being present in the process. So that that's my answer to you. Again, folks, the, the book that we're talking about currently is Cycle of Lives, um, which is the second book that David uh, has written and published. Um, I, I, I want to just kind of clarify because I know that the profits of the book are actually going towards um, mm-hmm. cancer-related charities. Can you, can you give us a little bit of insight into that? Sure. You know, I wish I was Oprah Winfrey and I wrote a book and not 10 million people would buy it, right? Just because <laughs> I got my name on it. So some people, there's a lot of money in books, but there's not a lot of money in books. But what I, what I told everyone is I said, listen, uh, all, all of who I spoke to, whether they were a doctor that worked for an organization they cared about or a person who was thankful for an organization that took care of them, they all felt a big affinity to that organization. And I said, all right, if you give if give me everything, I'll give everything from the book to those organizations. So uh, they're listed in the book. They're listed on my website, but they're organizations that are very big. Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida and American Cancer Society, uh, NYU, at, you know, their, their Langone uh, um, Cancer Center. So a Children's Hospital of LA, these type of, of places. And, and I just said 100% of what comes in goes out. So we just divide up everything to go out to those participants or those organizations that the participants picked. And it's, I feel good about it because like, how am I going to take from what those people are giving me? Right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get back what they give me. So what, whatever I can. So uh, that's a good thing. So, you know, buying the book does um, hopefully empower you with a few tools on how to have these kind of more authentic connections, mm-hmm. uh, even if with just yourself. Um but but at least know that uh, that nobody's trying to profit off it. These these are good organizations doing really good things for people. Yeah, where can people find a copy of the book and and where can people stay up to date with the the stuff that you're up to? Uh, thank you for that. Uh, most books are sold on Amazon, but uh, certainly walk into any big bookstore and and ask for Cycle of Lives, they'll have it. Um, there's an Audible. If you guys listen to Audibles, especially if you're doing endurance stuff. The Audible's kick ass. There's 15 different voiceover actors that do each one of the 15 stories. Oh, that's great. Oh, they're sweet. Good. Yeah, they're really good. Yeah. And each story, I mean, they're heavy topics, but they're very inspirational, very, very forward thinking, very satisfying. They might be a little moving, a few of them, but that's okay. Um uh, but yeah, on the on the on the uh website is cycleoflives.org. Or just look me up, David Richmond, or just uh, go to Amazon or Walk into Barnes and Noble or whatever. 
Sweet. Well, David, this has been uh, a really, really, really enjoyable conversation. Um, it's just, it's fun just to, just to hear you chat about your life and your experiences and the things that you've learned from all of that. Um, we really do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. Sure. You guys stick with it, man. You're making uh, a lot of people more informed and let, letting it be okay to explore things we, we're not normally exploring, you know? Cool. Thanks, dude. Thank you. Yeah. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.